Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. So um, I'm very pleased to uh, be here to welcome uh, you to LSE uh, for today's event, uh, which is forming part of the LSE Festival, uh, which has been going for the past week and I think is running a little bit longer for a day or two more uh, with some more events um, to come. Um, so this year's uh, theme uh, is um, people and change. Uh, and so it's kind of exploring uh, uh, um, uh, how change affects people and how people can affect change, uh, very broadly, broadly speaking. Uh, so, uh, so my name, I'm, I'm, I'm Steve Machen. Uh, I'm a professor of economics uh, here at LSE and I'm director of the Centre for Economic Performance. Uh, which is a research centre, uh, uh, which is which is based here. Um, I'm, I'm I'm delighted to welcome today's speakers. Uh, so to, this is this is a hybrid event. So it's, we have an online audience um, as well, and as well as, as people people in here. Um, and so I'm so I'm, I'm I'm delighted to welcome today's speakers uh, to the online audience and to be. Uh, the um, audience in the, in the lecture theatre. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say at the start, um, one of the speakers had to pull out at last notice, at, at last minute notice. Uh, Sophie Pender, uh, who was was scheduled to be on on, on the um, on this session, uh, who's the founder of a 93% club, uh, has had, unfortunately had to cancel, and so no longer is, is no longer able to join us today, uh, which is a shame. Um, anyway. Uh, let me introduce uh, the two speakers we do have here, uh, to my left and to my far left. Um, uh, so to, my, to, to the left of me is um, Lee Elliott Major, uh, who's uh, a professor of um, social mobility uh, at the University of Exeter. Um, he's the uh, first uh, uh, professor of social mobility in the country. Uh, not like, uh, not like economists who are just everywhere, you know, and stuff. <laughs> uh, sociologists who are everywhere, which is, which, who, Sam is a professor of sociology, we'll come, come to in a minute. Um, so he's Britain's first professor in the field. Um, so his work has been um, dedicated to improving prospects of disadvantaged young people. Uh, previously, Lee was um, chief executive of the, uh, of the, of the Sutton Trust, um, uh, which many of you have probably heard of, an educational charity, but there's a lot of work on, 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 so, on social mobility. Um, and, uh, and the drivers of social mobility. Um, Lee, uh, Lee, Lee's brought a little prop along which, which connects him to me, which is our book, uh, Social Mobility and Its Enemies, which I think he's going to refer to as, as he as, he, uh, as he, Available he in all through. good book uh, <laughs> online stores to this day. Yeah. <laughs> Enough of that. Okay, um, so further left is um, Sam Friedman, who's a, a professor of sociology. Uh, he's an expert on the sociology of class and inequality. Uh, he looks, in more recently, particularly on the culture, has been focusing on the cultural dimensions of uh, contemporary class divisions. Uh, uh, he, he, he was a commissioner on the Social Mobility Commission in the past. Uh, he's writing a book um, very much over the long term uh, currently. Uh, I think he may speak about it to a certain extent, uh, about, about how the British elite has changed over the past 120 years. Uh, one of his... Uh, Earlier books, uh, The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged, has researched social mobility, uh, and particularly focusing on um, uh, the extent of mobility of people getting into uh, higher professional and managerial occupations um, in, in the UK and the barriers uh, that, that certain, people, certain groups of people may face in, in, in being able to do so. Okay, so in, in, ter in terms of today's, uh, today's event, uh, we're going to be exploring uh, how we might be able to improve um, social mobility. Uh, one, of the, one of the main reasons for that, of course, is that Britain, if you kind of do an international league table of the extent of, uh, extent of social mobility, uh, certainly amongst uh, developed countries, Britain is one of the least mobile, and it's actually been getting less mobile, um, less socially mobile um, over time. So pre compared to previous generations, uh, you know, the chances of young people uh, yeah, when they start out on a whole range of dimensions, economic dimensions, uh, social dimensions, uh, other aspects, are much more tightly tied to their family background than they were in the past. And so that's the sense in which we mean that social mobility has fallen um, over time. 
So our experts we have here are going to uh, discuss various, various issues. It's a big subject. They won't, they're only going to get a few, a few minutes to speak. Um, uh, but they're going to try and discuss uh, issues that, that are pertinent to questions about how we might try to level the playing field in some way. Uh, why that's not being done already, uh, maybe aspects about where it has been done, and what's needed to turn ideas into action. Um, so I think, I think it's worth, worth remarking that <coughs> sorry, um, there's been a lot of academic research and policy intervention by a range of academics uh, in, in the social science disciplines uh, and, and I think that's what is going to be spoken about here as well. But a little bit more concretely, uh, each of the two presenters is going to give us an idea um, aimed at enhancing social mobility. <coughs> Sorry about cough. Where they're going to try and provide an explanation about why this should be implemented. And after the presentations, we're going to ask uh, for a vote in the room uh, between the two things that uh, the, two, the two policies, <laughs> in inverted commas, that, that, that they're going to propose. I'm going to see. In terms of it, so we'll have a vote about what, which ones people prefer and which ones they think may get political traction, because uh, both those questions are quite, quite important for, for, for this kind of dimension. So we'll have a, we'll have a vote. It'll be an old-style vote. We'll just have a vote by, by, by hands uh, and, and see where we get to. So they're going to compete to a certain extent on, on this, I think. Okay. So uh, for, for people who... People who are Twitter users in the audience, or, or, or indeed online, I guess, uh, the hashtag for today's event is um, hash, uh, then in capitals, LSEF, and then in lowercase, estival. So LSE festival, but in capitals, uh, LSEF. Uh, please, uh, the usual request, please put your phones on uh, silence so we don't disrupt the event. I think mine's on, so I better turn it off in a minute before we, uh, before we get going. Uh, and the event's going to be recorded. Uh, always being being recorded, um, and uh, so will be made available as a podcast uh, um, afterwards. Uh, so what we're going to do is, first, each of the two speakers is going to speak for about ten minutes, and embedded in that will be their proposal that we're going to uh, have a little um, little vote upon. Um, after that, uh, we're going to open up uh, to questions uh, questions from the audience here and and on the uh, uh, on the online. Um, on the online, uh, uh, on the, people, people, people who are online. Um, so anybody who is online, you can submit questions for you via the um, Q&A feature. Uh, but it's on there. If you do so, can you please include your name and affiliation um, as well? Uh, so I'll come back to have a question is going to operate after we've heard from the two speakers. So uh, we'll go over first to Lee, uh, and then Sam will speak second. Do you want me to speak here or over there? It depends whether no, you've got slides or anything. Just stay here. Or anything just stay here. Okay. Um, right, thanks, Steve. I'm slightly anxious now because I didn't realise I was going to be up against Sam in a sort of competitive way, but I think we're both, we're both feeling that now. Um, so I just want to spend a few minutes just setting the context of this um, uh, debate and then get to sort of my idea. I always, I'm, I mean, we'll come to my idea. I, I don't think it's got any political traction. I'm probably going to lose this by the time I, by the time I start. And by the way, I am the first professor of social business. When everyone says I'm a leading thinker in social business, my 18-year-old daughter says, Dad, that's because you're the only professor in social business. But of course, there's lots of people like Sam and Steve who, who look at this stuff. Um, so I was asked on the BBC, so I have to, I have to drop that into conversation, uh, yesterday about where we have progressed since we published this book. It's about... It's five years, Steve, since this was published. And um, I just wanted to sort of give a sense of where I think we are um, in terms of, of social mobility more broadly um, characterised, and then I'll come to sort of an idea that me and Steve had, actually. It's me and Steve versus you, Sam, um, in the book, which I'll, which I'll, I'll, I'll run through. Um, so where, where do we think uh, we are? What, one thing I'd say is that, and, and I'm sure, I think Sam, I know Sam agrees with this as well, is that you know, when we think about social mobility, um, it, it is much broader than just um, the sort of catapulting someone like me from a sort of lowly background into the elites, right? That's, that's very narrow, uh, important, but, but narrow side of social mobility. And, and, and in the book, Steve and I try to argue that you know, the principle in, in many ways should be that your background shouldn't determine what you do, whatever you choose to do, right? So I would argue, you know, 
becoming a teacher is a good outcome, but it might not, in some of the studies that we're involved in, be registered as highly mobile, right? So, so a lot of my work, I guess, might be, might be called social justice, right? But the studies we do are looking, as Steve was saying, between origins and outcomes. And the reason we do that is that gives a sort of indication of the, the levels of equality of opportunity in society, right? So that's why politicians are so interested in it. Um, if, if we look at some of the things we looked at in this book, um, you know, and I, I would say yeah, some of the enemies at the time, Steve, people would say, who are the enemies? Inequality would be one of them, right? And again, Sam could speak about that a lot more than me. Um, inertia was something else, right? I would say added to that now is, is almost ignorance, I would say, um, particularly among some of the elites about some of the issues facing uh, people in, in society. Uh, and so where, where, do I, where would I say we are in terms of the sort of major dials on social mobility broadly sort of characterised? Well, one, uh, we are seeing school achievement gaps wider now. If you looked at the last results of primary schools, that the achievement gaps wider now than 10 years previously. We have a national crisis in terms of school attendance. There are about 40% children on free school meals now who do not regularly attend school. That's something that wasn't happening in 2018, pre-pandemic. We have a rising tide of child poverty in this country. Um, if you look at proportions of children on free school meals, that's gone up every year since 2018. Um, and, there's other, and there's other things as well. Steve, not me, has done stuff on things like housing mobility. And what we know is that you're less likely for this younger generation to be able to get onto the housing ladder, particularly if your parents are on rented sort of accommodation. So on all sorts of measures, I'm afraid to say that I think we are moving backwards in, in many ways. And then finally, on the elites, I mean, there's lots of stats I could, I could present on that. I think one that we always liked was um, that, you know, how many universities have produced British prime ministers since the war. I mean, it's just kind of stylized facts. It's, it's, it's a, but, but basically, it's one, right? It's one. Um, Gordon Brown, Scottish, right? So before anyone says, Lee, uh, what about Gordon Brown, Scottish? How many... How many uh, universities produced English prime ministers since the war that went to universities. John Major didn't go to university, but of those that did, they came from one institution, um, Oxford. And by the way, I've had to update the slide I do on that several times in the last three months, or six months, because of so much change at the top of, of politics. Uh, I just think that's a signal for me, and again, I'm conscious here, I'm one of the world's experts on this here, um, of just how... Um, exclusive our, our, our elites are at the, at the top of um, society. And by the way, the one place where there is mobility at the, moment, at the moment is education secretaries. We've had five in the last year, right? Um, and I think that's a real sign for me of, of the dysfunctionality and detachedness of, 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 our, of our elites. So, so I do think we're in a worse position than five years ago. Um, I'm conscious of today's debate is particularly about opening up those elites. And... Um, when we wrote the book, we, we did discuss this a lot, Steve, do you remember, and those sort of painful discussions when we were writing. When you co-author a book, it's like being married to someone for a, for a year. Um, and we, every word we battled over in, in the, in those, when we wrote the book. Uh, I, I think the thing that, that w I would want to present to you today as an idea was um, the use of lotteries um, in university admissions and indeed school admissions, where there is a school or university where there are more applicants than places, uh, we argued that the fairest way, uh, alongside some sort of threshold, so where students might get, say, I don't know, for someone like LSE, it's probably three A's, isn't it, or something, um, but over and above that, you would select um, students for courses um, by random allocation. Sounds quite radical, doesn't it? But we, we concluded that because every other way of doing this Unfortunately, it's middle-class parents like myself would find ways of, uh, of, of, of winning that sort of place. Um, and we've seen a huge um, escalation, if you like, if you can call it that, of private tutoring outside schools over the last two decades. I would argue that a grade in, a level, in an A-level now is as much a function of, the, of where you come from, the support you've had, as any notion of academic potential. So... Um, and, and I remember um, Philip, um, who's the speechwriter for Tony Blair? So, uh, I'm trying to get his name. Um, anyway, one of the speechwriters for Tony Blair was saying that, 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 that lotteries are fair. That's why everyone hates them, I remember him saying. And um, I always, also remember, so I go back a long way, David Cameron, our great former Prime Minister, one of the Etonian uh, Prime Ministers we've had in recent times, 
said when, when I asked him that we, about this idea of random allocation, he said, Lee, um, a, a child's life shouldn't be decided by the roll of the dice. And the point, of course, is, is that there is a lottery of life, right? That we are born uh, into families, and that's what all our studies really suggest, is that if you're born, for whatever, for no fault of your own, into the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong family, I'm using pejorative terms here, uh, then your life chances aren't great, for, for no fault of your own. So I feel like this is a way of balancing, of levelling that playing field um, in a way that other, other uh, attempts won't do. So that would be my suggestion to you, random justice, maybe I, I could call it that. And Steve, it's really funny, you know, we proposed this five years ago, it was noticeable to me that Michael Sandel, the great philosopher that produced a book a couple of years ago, also came up with this idea, but because we're in the social sciences, no one actually references each other. I, 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 did, a, I did a PhD in physics, and uh, it's kind of, kind of interesting to me that it, people in different fields, it's, it seems to me that Michael Sandel didn't read our book, outrageous, isn't it? Um, but he came up, this, this great thinker came up with the same idea. So I'll leave it at that and, and hand over to Sam, and I can explain a bit more what, how that lottery would work. Um, by the way, Dutch medical schools use this. It's used by child schools in the US. It's used by schools in, in, in the UK. So it is used. It is out there. Um, and I think it would be a way of uh, levelling the playing field, particularly in terms of access to elite institutions. Thank you very much. OK, thanks. Over to you, Sam. Um, great, thank you. Um, I read your book, Lee, and, uh, and, and, and I think those are great. I, I think lorries are a great idea, so can I vote? I'll, I'll vote for you. Um, <laughs> um, so in 2019, my colleague Daniel Lorison and I uh, published a book, Steve just mentioned it, uh, called The Class Ceiling. And what we showed um, is that in contemporary Britain, it quite literally pays to be privileged. Um, even when those from working class backgrounds get into our most elite occupations, uh, they go on to earn about 16% less than their colleagues in the same jobs from more privileged backgrounds. And that's a class pay gap that persists even when we, uh, they are kind of meritocratically similar to their colleagues in, in every way we could measure um, using various means. Now, this book hit at a time when uh, employers seemed to be finally waking up, I think, to issues of class, um, and in a way that I think is perhaps a little bit more optimistic than, than Lee, um, I think in the years that have followed, so this is sort of, again, about four or five now, I think there has been significant progress in addressing, certainly not smashing, but addressing the class ceiling in these elite professions, specifically organisations across a range of sectors, so banking, accountancy, law, media, just name just a few, have started, I think, to take quite seriously the underrepresentation of employees from working class backgrounds, both in terms of access uh, and less so, but starting to uh, the issue of career progression. And I think it is worth saying, in, on that front anyway, um, this is something that is entirely absent in every other country. Um, this sort of notion of, 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 of class being integrated into organisational uh, sort of diversity and inclusion agendas. Um, and there are still some sectors in the UK where it is also still uh, very conspicuously absent, including our very own here in academia, uh, which lags, I think, really spectacularly behind, which might be something we talk about. But I think in particular, when we look at this agenda, one of the things that's kind of moved the dial a little bit has been this kind of uh, a widespread collection of workforce data on people's class or socioeconomic background using a kind of common methodology, and this is usually uh, foregrounding people's uh, parental occupation when they were growing up. And that's allowed organisations to interrogate their class composition, to look at whether they too have a class pay gap within their organisation, um, but also then to see how the class backgrounds of their staff intersect with all sorts of other characteristics such as race and gender and start to really take that intersectionality uh, question seriously. It's also led, I think, to growing recognition that positive change in removing these kinds of class barriers actually requires collective responsibility. And so collaborative action across a profession um, um, with firms 
particularly, I think, in the accountancy, uh, legal and financial services professions, now actually beginning to work in concert or convoy to kind of tackle those class origin uh, gaps in career progression. So rather than the kind of sort of normal corporate competitive idea, trying to get professions to see that to actually tackle this stuff, they need to work together as an industry. Um, because these issues, while you know, occasionally do have very important class sort of organisation-specific barriers, we looked, for example, in our book at, at Channel Four, and there was some very striking findings about internal culture there. Often, the barriers are are kind of uh, uh, national and, and industry-wide. Um, you've recently also seen the important step, sort of flowing from this, of um, lots of firms publishing class background data publicly, and some such as KPMG, PwC, BBC, um, now going further, actually setting targets um, which they can be called to account on uh, in terms of increasing the representation of staff from working class backgrounds at partner or senior management level. I think these are, these are encouraging steps. I think it's you know, certainly worth reflecting on how far we've come in just a few years in, in pushing this agenda forward. But I think for me personally, and this is where sort of come back to a more skeptical uh, tone, these are only small wins. Um, they may be a necessary part of tackling class inequality in the professions, but they're certainly not sufficient. Uh, and I think this is fundamentally because they really only address one aspect of that inequality, equality of opportunity, uh, fair allocation of rewards within the workplace. But I think this kind of narrow focus uh, on social mobility really can't be our kind of uh, solution to, to the type of class inequality that, that underpins this. Um, and I think for me in particular, the discussions about the relationship between these sorts of professions uh, and inequality need to shift now to not just um, who professionals themselves are, but actually what is the work that they themselves do um, and how does that relate to these issues. So just to give you one example of this, you know, many of these elite professions are directly implicated in driving the kind of high pay, particularly at the top end, that have contributed so profoundly to growing income inequality in, in, in many Western countries. And so I think in this way, and as my brilliant colleague Louise Ashley has pointed out, it's important to recognize that organizational social mobility agendas sometimes act as a kind of form of cultural legitimation, that they allow professional employers to kind of align themselves rhetorically uh, with sort of egalitarian values, but at the same time they kind of act to, to obscure, you might even say class wash, um, their role in perpetrating class inequalities in society more broadly. So considering that, um, what pragmatic policy solutions might there be to advocate for in this space. I think I am a policy pragmatist, ultimately, um, and, um, and I think hopefully we're heading towards a change of government. So, um, it, you know, there's, there's, there's something at stake, right, in, 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 our, in, answer, in asking this kind of question now. So one thing, certainly not a panacea, um, but that strikes me as a step in the right direction would be uh, the implementation and enactment of what's called the socioeconomic duty uh, which was originally contained within Section 1 of the Equality Act of 2010, which successive UK governments have refused to enact, but has been brought in, interestingly, in some shape or form, both in Wales and Scotland. And I should stress, actually, currently has the express support of 81 of our own MPs in Parliament. Now, this duty could, and I stress could, because, of course, there are many complexities in how it might be implemented, but it could do two important things. First, I think it would provide a clear mandate for making class origin a protected characteristic. Indeed, I'm part of a group headed uh, by Rob Powell, who's here. Rob, you should uh, hand up. Um, uh, looking both at how we might lobby for this, but also what draft legislation might look like. And we also have support on this particular issue, making class uh, a protected characteristic from other settings like the British Psychological Associate, uh, Society who have done a lot of work in this space and uh, you may have noticed actually even the co-op yesterday um, as a business came out in support of this and, 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 and are trying to work towards this as a goal. Um, of course this sort of move is, is, is complex to implement but I think the point here is that it would be useful in protecting people from working class backgrounds from being discriminated in the workplace 
Um, but also, I think, would be important in a sort of more sen symbolic sense in compelling a much wider range of organisations to take class more seriously. You know, I've had, for example, lots of internal conversations with the LSE uh, about doing this type of work. And while you do, you know, you do get people who are interested in it, this stuff often sort of fizzles out. And I think that's partly because there isn't the kind of statutory um, requirement to address these issues. Secondly, though, and I suppose more importantly, <coughs> the socioeconomic duty would also go significantly beyond this principle of equality of opportunity. It would require government and all public bodies to, and I quote, have due regard for reducing inequalities of outcome, especially as they relate to socioeconomic disadvantage. Now, obviously, what this means in practice is somewhat uncertain, but I think, again, as a kind of symbolic move, this would represent a really significant rhetorical shift in policymaking, away from this kind of sole focus on social mobility, on equality of opportunity, towards a broader emphasis on class or socioeconomic inequality. Great, thanks. Okay, so, um, so we've, we've heard uh, two presentations there. Uh, and we have, I think we have the, uh, two fairly substantive um, policy proposals uh, uh, aimed at the, which are aimed both, uh, I guess, theoretically and potentially in practice uh, to try and improve, um, improve social mobility levels. So I, I think we should have a two, I think we, having, having heard that, uh, I think we should have a two-stage uh, voting process for what, what people might think about that. The first one of which would be, I think, uh, which one they, which, whether they think they're politi politically tractable or not, which one is the most politically tractable, uh, and then the second one, which one you, you, you would prefer um, out of the two. So let's see if we see any different patterns um, when we do that. And uh, I know you've only got a choice of two here, uh, and there could be a whole, uh, we, we, we could present a whole uh, barrage of other, other policy proposals. But I suppose picking between the two is quite good. So I guess if you keep your hand down on both of them, that presumably is a signal that you don't like either of them. So I'm going to try and see if people will, people will vote for one, one against the other. Okay, so let's go. So we've got, we've got lotteries for oversubscribed events or activities, uh, like university admissions, uh, like school. Oh, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> There's a lot of enthusiasm over there. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got lotteries for oversubscribed events, like, um, like university admissions, uh, like when certain schools uh, have more, more people uh, applying than there are places. Uh, and I guess that might come after some of the other criteria that are used in school admissions, but the oversubscription. So the oversubscription is the critical thing here. This isn't just lotteries for stuff. This is for lotteries for oversubscription. Then we have uh, socio-economic duty, uh, and particularly about class origin, uh, and uh, you know, and about more, I guess more transparency uh, in a wide range of settings. So Sam did tend to focus on the workplace, but I think it's broader than that yeah. um, as, as well. Other other activities that go on in society, um, and so on. Uh, so um, let, let's let, let, let's take a little leaf out of. Uh, Lee, Lee's book and about random justice and lotteries. So I'm going to just sort of like that and say, okay, who votes for who? Who thinks Sam's proposal is politically um, tractable? You, you can count. A lot. <laughs> that looks like about fifty percent of, of a room. Yeah. No more than that. More than Sixty. Yes. Martin, you can do it. <laughs> We have to have an independent. I think that's about sixty percent. Okay, who thinks Lee's uh, proposal is is politically tractable? Yeah, much less. Yeah. Much less. Mm. Okay, now we now we're going to line up. Uh, we're going to line up, uh, but the two get two against each other. So you only get one vote here. Uh, so who prefers uh, Lee's proposal about lotteries? Who, who prefers uh, socio-economic duty? Definitely more. Okay, so Sam is Sam is Sam is the winner on, on, on both counts. Although I think the gap was a little bit narrower. Yeah, definitely. In the in, in, in the choice between the, uh, the, the, the the two options. I think I just to say I think I would probably choose these. 
<laughs> let's, let's not let's not compl- let's not come back. Are you going to give me a chance to ask Sam some difficult questions? Or no, don't know. On no, his, no, let's open can up. we? I'm not, I, I agree, but I mean, let's it's open you know, it up to you. Yes, yeah. Go on, ask yeah. him. Go on, yeah. Ask him a difficult question about it. Okay. So one thing Sam didn't mention is how do we define class? Okay. And one thing I'm guessing, Sam, you're, you're assuming that this is occupational class measures you're talking about, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I would just worry because, as Sam knows, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously that's the only thing we've got at the moment, right? But I, it, this, they were built for a, a world 40 years ago, you know more than me. I would worry that they could be used. Uh, so, so basically the way you measure class is not straightforward, right? The other thing I've heard about this, Sam, again, and I don't quite understand, and Rob may be able to help this, I have heard other academics suggest that if you did have that duty, it would actually go against uh, widening participation efforts because you wouldn't be able to, for example, have lower offers for those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. I don't know how you get over that, but, but that's been a critique of that, that it could actually bizarrely make it even worse. So just... Just out of interest, what, what would you say on those two things? Yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is absolutely right to dig into the detail. Um, I think on the, 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 the sort of definition of class, I mean, it, it, it's unbelievably tricky. Um, and I think that, but, but similarly, you know, 10 years ago when I started working in and around employ, employment and this topic, people said the same thing about, measuring class origins in the workforce um, and there is now a kind of consensus and it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of um, reports and evidence sort of not just sort of gathering and reporting but socializing so that people kind of get used to the arguments around it because in, initially when you talk to lots of people they, they say I think quite understandably well how can you reduce class to just that the reality is you understand that you are you're doing some sort of reducing but you're doing it for pragmatic purposes um and i think you know in the case of uh of of like workforce reporting you sort of use in in the best instances like the civil service they have a whole basket of measures they use them independently they use them in concert um and they they just have a kind of sophisticated understanding of how you would need to kind of think about this if you were implementing it in uh, in sort of key decision-making settings. Definitely, you're right, though, around drafting legislation, What, how you would do that. I might just, if, if you don't mind, pass over to Rob, because he's in the audience. Not to put you on the spot, Rob, but I don't know what the what the um, sort of latest is, because it is something, as a group, we've been grappling with specifically in terms of how specific you would need to be on that question of definition in a sort of draft legislation form. Yeah, so hi everybody, um, I'm Rob Powell, I'm from a law firm called Wild Gotchild and Nanjis, we're just around the corner, um, and as Sam mentioned, uh, about three years ago we formed a, a group which is now about 50 academics, like Sam, Lee, welcome to join, a <laughs> um, number of businesses, charities, policy makers and well-intimate social facts protective characteristic in the Equality Act. And um, we um, have five amazing, truly top-of-the-market employment barristers and lawyers who are going to be working on this between now and September, including the King's Council, somebody who drafted the, the UN Rights for Children with Angelina Jolie. Uh, we've got some serious people in our group. I think the key thing is, is when you look at other protective characteristics in the Equality Act, we want socioeconomic disadvantage to be non-symmetrical, like disability is. Because if you look at race, mm. it applies to people who are white as well as black. Um, so in this case, you could have, if you had a symmetrical, um, you could have middle-class people suing working-class people because they got into... Sorry, yes. I don't know if anybody could uh, hear me before then. But you could have that kind of reverse, and I think, Lee, you touched upon that there, and that would actually allow um, or disenable things like contextualised recruitment if it was symmetrical. So we're, we want to make it non-symmetrical. We've done legal research 
around 32 jurisdictions. We found a number of comparable economies, Australia, France, Belgium, a number of US states who do in fact have protections in place for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, just across the water, has, has got a similar proposal. And actually their definition is brilliant, super straightforward. It's like accent, clothing, where you're from. Like it's literally just straight, and, and I think that is the starting point for us, um, for this. So we're gonna have a go at drafting legislation in the summer. Um, running in parallel with that is the, the Co-op campaign, which um, Sam mentioned, that was launched yesterday. If you look at that, 9,000 people they polled, asking a range of social justice, socioeconomic questions, vast majority would be in favour of this. So I think it would be much more politically palatable um, um, as we go into party conference season, and that is the aim. Um, and if you look at Labour, without going into politics, um, they have committed to the public sector duty already, and that is quite easy politically, um, because you actually don't need a vote in the House of Commons, you just need a minister to enact it. Um, they've, always, they've, they've also committed to banning unpaid internships, which is one of our asks. Um, mandatory class pay gap reporting for employers with more than 250 people could be on the cards. I think as well... Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Well, mandatory salary bans um, on job vacancies would also help. That's just been brought in in New York and California. So I think there's a number of measures where you can change the system. Um, so you, you know, the, the narrow focus on social mobility, the, the council estate to the boardroom narrative is important, but actually this is about government pulling on levers. Legislation is kind of free. Um, and it's quite an easy thing for government to, to do if they have the majority. Thanks. Okay, okay good. So, uh, so I, I think it's also worth recognising that there's different metrics that apply in different sectors and places. So, of course, a, a quite a useful one in the university setting is whether people are first-generation uh, university students and whether their parents didn't, if, if the people who didn't, whose parents didn't have uh, or didn't go to college. And stuff as well. So I think it's, it, the flexibility of that is, is, quite, is quite important. Before we go to the Q&A, uh, and it's, it's only fair, I think, that Lee gets asked the difficult question as well. <laughs> so what would you say to the, to the observation that uh, people will react strategically to be in the introduction of lotteries, and particularly if people who've got economic and social power will develop other institutions that you don't need to have oversubscribed that they can get into? Why are you asking me this difficult question? Um, and I didn't realise Sam would have backup here as well. But I mean, I'm, I'm like, um, and by the way, I don't disagree with that. Um, and I'm really uncomfortable with this either or sort of positioning now that I'm losing. Um, uh, and by the way, the other thing um, uh, about random allocation, and I'm going to try and answer your question, Steve, because I do think you're right. Probably that would happen to some extent, right? But. Um, and I was really struck what Sam was saying about, and I, I agree with you, in the, in the corporate world, there has been definite a change in mindset, I'd, I'd argue, over the next 10 years, partly driven by your work. Um, what's interesting, it contrasts often with what's happening in the higher education world, where I feel like we're a bit stuck. And that's why lotteries would be such a powerful tool, because yeah. actually, to be honest, I don't need any political traction. LSE could do this. They're an independent institution. Exeter could do this. The Russell Group University could do this. So actually, by the way, I don't need to, to win that vote because we can, we can just bypass this dysfunctional parliament. No, no democracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, universities are auto autonomous institutions and I don't think they're brave enough, actually, to stand up for issues of social justice as much as they should be. Um, anyway, we, we could get into that. So um, I'm not answering your question, Steve, but what I'm saying to everyone is we don't need the political traction. We could do this ourselves, and I think that's quite powerful. My, my question to Sam and Rob was going to be, you know, we have a dysfunctional political league, how are you going to... But you've sort of answered that one as well, to be honest with you, because um, that that's the other worry in the back of my mind. How could we get this 
uh, mm. but, but, you know, it sounds like you've got clever ways of making that happen. But I suppose, the, the, yeah, the advantage of lotteries is that you don't need to do all that. But I think, Steve, you're right, there probably would be tactical... What would that look like, Steve? Like, what are you getting at? What would be the ways that you... How would people bypass... Like, how... You know, if you, t if you take the Russell group and you make them all lotteries, are you saying that, you know, the privileged would just start their own universities, or...? Well, that's a... I mean, I mean yeah, I mean, you either operate within the existing system and try to manipulate things there, or you, or you, you create new institutions. Mm. The schools is easier. I mean, you can sort of think about free schools. Yeah. Fitting, yeah. fitting the bill for that yeah. uh, in some way mm. already. Yeah. Um, I, I think you'd have to design the lottery really carefully if we're honest about it. You know, if you were applying to LSE, you probably would have to get some guarantee that you would get a chance in, a, in another institution as well so that people aren't lost, lost in, in, in that. But I, I, when we looked at it, you know, that was the only thing we, could, we, we, we believed could... Because everything else we looked at, to be honest, could be gamed by powerful middle-class families of which of whom I'm you know of one and I think in these debates of social mobility social justice we always underestimate the power of the of the family to uh, to do to do this stuff no matter how um, progressive our, our social and education policies are um, but anyway yeah I'm, I'm rambling here but 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 certainly I think lotteries could work because we don't need that that political buying can I just make one one comment though? Because I think I, I've said it before, and maybe it's a bit of a kind of sociological angle, and you might say it's a bit of a cop out. But I do think, you know, if you t you take this sort of thing and you do the thought experiment of something like, you know, uh, selective schooling um, or Russell Group universities, there is just a massive symbolic sort of culture shift move that you do that that you signal to society what this evolving idea of fairness means, right? When you talk to people, even very much on the right, they tend to be still very invested in the notion of fairness. It's just a very different political idea of fairness, but people want to feel morally righteous. And I think there's a sense in which, if you do something like this, it so clearly signals that that sort of gaming of starting a new institution is outside the boundaries of what we as a sort of collective society have, have agreed upon as being um, the sort of the, the way we should allocate rewards, that I think it, it, it sort of attaches more of a stigma to it. So I'm, I'm not as convinced that you would, that you would, I'm sure you would get some of that, sort of starting new institutions and such like, but I think, I think the symbolic element would, would, would inhibit that a little. It was really interesting by the way, because I looked up just before today's talk, and when we wrote the book, Steve, uh, the Netherlands had a lottery. They stopped their lottery. This is for, for, for university admissions, but now they're reintroducing it. Uh, it's quite interesting. So I, that made me wonder whether, and I need to look at that, what they've done, what the details are, but it made me think a bit more confidently that this could be something that's done, right? Um, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, good. So let's, let, let, let's move to the next stage. Let's go to the, um, the Q&A uh, Q uh, session. Uh, so thanks very much for your presentations. So we're going to open the floor up now to questions, questions from the audience. You can focus in on what the speakers have spoken about or ask more general questions. Uh, so so what, we, what we're going to do is I'm going to get people to raise their hands and we'll take, we'll take questions in, we'll take two or three questions in, 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 in each go. Uh, and we'll also uh, at, see if, if is, is there responses? Yes, okay. So we'll also take some of the online 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 questions as well so, so you've already seen the roving microphone in action because we had a preempted question over there. Um, so there is roving microphones and so okay so who'd, who'd like who'd like to go you were very fast so you can you can go first oh you can say who you are as well oh hello uh, my name is grace i work at pwc um, I'm a social mobility inclusion manager, best job in the world. Um, but um, my question is, is, is not really to do with my work because I'm sort of opening up to a global context, which I think poses challenges for both your arguments. Um, one for the university lottery side, you know, we have a system at the moment where if you're an international student, you can pay astronomical fees. Generally, I assume you'd be in the elites to do that and you buy your way into a place in the university and that poses problems for a lottery. Firstly, how would you deal with that? And then secondly, from a business's side, we're a UK-based firm, 
so we don't have to deal with this issue. We've got 95% disclosure rates. I have to say that because we're super excited about it. Um, but um, we talk to lots and lots of businesses who say, as a global business, it is an absolute nightmare collecting that data. And um, both from the global firm, but also from, from parts across outside of the UK, they don't understand the reasons behind it. They don't understand the context. And the data collection piece feels uniquely to a UK problem, whether it is or it isn't, isn't the debate. But yeah, just how would you deal with that global aspect? Okay, who else wants to give us one right at the back there? Hi, um, thanks. It's uh, been really interesting hearing you talk today. Uh, my name is Eloise, and I work at the Social Mobility Foundation. Um, this is kind of separate from my work, but I'm really interested in um, the idea of London centrism and also if we were in to introduce that kind of lottery. Um, I would wonder whether the postcode lottery of where you were born um, would kind of pip to the post of the inclusion um, lottery that would come when you were to apply to certain institutions. Thank you. Hello. My name is uh, Tushar Prabhu from Kartik Foundation. Um, I had a question for Lee which was relating to the point you made at the beginning, which was your background should not prevent you from doing what you choose to do. I just wondered, um, how much do you think your background circumscribes is what you choose to do? How much do people actually deselect themselves from certain careers, certain jobs? What, how big is that factor? A lot of what we've talked about is on the employer side, but how does the background place limitations on choice? Okay, so we've got, we got, we got global, we've got regional, we've got individual. Okay, um, so let's start. Do you want to... Take which ones you want to take? You want to go? Um, I'll try, yeah. I was going to do this thing where you think about what you're going to say as Sam's speak, but I'll, I'll go first. Um, I think the global point's a really good point, and, and to be honest, I hadn't thought through it. I mean, the reality, as you'll know, for universities is a lot of the revenue comes through the international. And I, I do a lot of work with universities um, trying to make it more inclusive for people from less advantage, if you can put it that way or work class backgrounds my argument for that is that actually if you make it inclusive for them you're also making it more inclusive for international students because i do worry about i'm not going to answer your question by the way but this is a broader point um that we, we we bring students from all around the world but we don't actually in my view make it genuinely inclusive uh, but you probably would have to restrict the lottery i guess to home students you know um I mean, just going back to the postcode, and I, I, I absolutely agree that where you're from increasingly determines your life prospects. And I do think we need a re more regional approach to social mobility. You know, we just set up a Southwest Social Mobility Commission. Um, I think we need something more regional. Um, I mean, again, when Sam was there, Social Mobility Commission did some good work. Um, I think, I think we, we need more of a regional approach to this because the barriers in North Devon, I can tell you, are very different to inner Sunderland or um, Rochdale or whatever. Um, but I think my idea of a lottery would enable young people to come from, from different parts of the country. Maybe we can talk about this because I, I, I think you were arguing the opposite. It would be more difficult, but I, I think it would help, wouldn't it? Um, possibly. Um, the, the choices stuff, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, again... I'm trying to think of the literature on this, and maybe Sam knows it more than me, possibly. I don't know. But my, my, my gut instinct is that people do deselect out of industries, and it's that sort of not-for-the-likes-of-me type. I've seen some, some stuff on, on that, and, and you get that with the universities as well. You know, shiny LSE is not for me. You know, they just look at LSE, and, and they have not applied. And I, I know universities do try a lot of that outreach, um, and I suspect, Sam, some of the stuff you've done with um, big organisations, employers, what I don't know is to what extent are they, are they doing that outreach to get people to consider them in the first place, right? Because I think a lot of your work is about the, the, the cultures inside those places. Yeah. But if they're not going to apply in the first place, you've you kind of already lost the battle. So I don't know if there's anything that employers are doing on that. Um, but sorry, that, that, was, that was my responses. Yeah, uh, great questions. So I think the global issue is, is, is obviously uh, interesting in this area on a number of levels, right? Um, we have a unique sort of conversation, cultural conversation about class in this country to do with our history. Um, 
I think a lot of countries tell themselves they don't have class systems, they don't have socioeconomic inequality, um, uh, or, or, or certainly sort of sort of cultural class identities, which I don't think is necessarily the case. Um, and so, when you then think about how that relates to moving this agenda forward, um, I think it's a little bit like where we were ten years ago with uh, sort of certainly if we think about employers like yourselves. Um, you have to do a long process, which often involves people on the ground like yourselves, who are actually really good at doing the socialising the issue piece in organisations, to start to make people less scared, to understand why they're being asked to self-declare, to get the rates up to 95% where you can do a really effective analysis. You know, when you look at other countries, um, you know, when we're looking at this, you know, the, the sort of main variable that we use in analysis um, at the moment, which is parental occupation, um, there are sort of occupational schemas that are at European level, or at a global level, that can be used. I have a PhD student at the moment, Asif, who's doing a great project looking at a law, law, elite law in Germany. And he's collected data and he's having a great time because all of these huge law firms are sort of at the beginning of the journey that we are at war on 10, 15 years ago here. And he's talking all over the place because there actually is a real appetite for this. And he's started to solve the sort of basic stumbling block, which is like where we were, which is, well, how do we, how do we measure this? Oh, we can't do this. Oh, oh, maybe we can. And then you start to see some really interesting findings. And suddenly the agenda starts to move forward. So I don't think it's impossible. <coughs> um, London centrism is obviously massive and connects to the third question a bit about sorting because when we have an economy where opportunities are so clustered in the capital, it often means that to be upwardly socially mobile, you're sort of, there's a sort of forced uh, domestic migration that a lot of people, I think, for very sort of obvious reasons, say no to because they're connected to their communities, they're connected to their families uh, in ways that sort of mean that they self-eliminate but the, I think the only issue with that type of question in a policy sense, in a political sense, is it's very, it's very often framed in a kind of deficit way. You know that, that people from working class backgrounds have a kind of uh, a limit on their aspirations. And I think the point with these sorts of questions, particularly the sort of not for the likes of us, is that you can't really separate that from the fact that, you know, an institution like LSE, what is... What is it about the institution that generates that feeling in people? Um, you can't separate those two things. Um, and so, you know, if, if it's very much a sort of context question rather than some sort of inherent aspiration, I think, sort of issue, which is often, I think, how it's framed on the right. Okay, good. Uh, Martin, can we have a couple of online questions? Hi, yes, we've got a couple of questions from online here. Um, one is asking about the uh, uh, social economic duty, and it asks, how would you stop middle-class parents working or gaming the system in terms of their class origins? So he's asking if relatives were from a socially uh, mobile background, um, how would you stop them from gaming the system and, and trying to use their background and, and transferring it to their children, even though they've uh, improved their own position. And um, a more broader question we have here is uh, noticing, uh, one of the viewers is noticing the lack of uh, political will for social mobility policies, and is asking how significant is political support in achieving any social mobility? Is there any scope for a grassroots or a public supported system? Okay, so Gaiman is one of the classic social mobility questions that arises quite often. Middle class uh, families uh, gaming, gaming the system and um, the uh, issue of political will we've, we've sort of alluded to by the questioning a little bit before uh, about yeah. whether, whether, there is a, whether there is kind of a demand for uh, social mobility to be improved in, 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 in the kind of political sphere. So, Sam, do you want to have a yeah. um, So, the first question is actually, is actually really interesting because some of the work I've done has shown that you 
do have this very interesting phenomenon in the UK, which is unlike many other countries in the world, whereby a lot of people who are from sort of objectively fairly privileged backgrounds actually see themselves as coming from working class backgrounds and claim a working class identity, um, and often do so through um, recourse to a kind of extended family history where there is, you know, if you go back far enough in most people's families, a kind of story of, of sort of, um, you know, um, struggle and meritocratic striving and, and, and upward mobility. Um, I think the, think, having done quite a lot of interviews with, with people in this way, I don't think it's that cynically strategic. I think it's more about we grow up hearing stories of our families and that informs how we think of ourselves. Um, I don't think you could, obviously you couldn't stop people sort of outright lying on the sort of forms or self-declarations that you do around social mobility. I'm not sure specifically on that you would get that much sort of gaming. That feels like a fairly ex extreme thing to do. I'm sure it would happen, but I'm not sure it would happen systematically that would really disrupt the benefit of, of, of bringing in something like the duty. Um, I mean, the political will question is, is, is massive. I think social mobility is, a, is this really strange political football whereby a very weak form of social mobility, often a very weak version of equality of opportunity, is actually incredibly popular and you get kind of lip service paid to it completely across the board. You see it come up in a really sort of banal way in basically every speech that any top politician makes, particularly when they're making a big play for a kind of overall agenda, but a kind of a, a sort of really concerted radical will um, feels quite um, difficult to get a grasp on. And having been on the Social Mobility Commission, I think I saw firsthand actually how, um, I suppose my narrative, and I should say it's very much my own view, but it felt to me a little bit like, um, you know, the, the, the um, the, the version of the Social Mobility Commission that had been going previously had been basically an irritant for the government and so they had tried under, in the version that I was part of and even more so now to kind of neuter its critical capacities a bit by who they filled uh, uh, in terms of the chair and the commissioners um, and I think that's a kind of a slightly cynical way of trying to sort of stop the agenda from moving forward. My hope is that if we do get a Labour government, there will be a more general and slightly more radical will. Yeah, so the whole point of lotteries is they can't be gamed, everyone. So I'm, I'm, still, I'm still sort of... I've been defeated tonight. I still can't let go of this. But... And I think Sam's probably right. I, I'm, try, I'm trying. I think it probably would be gamed to the extent of, of that. Uh, it's hard because I was trying to think how you'd categorise yourself. But everyone, it, do not underestimate that. A lot of universities tell me that you know because we, we use postcodes at the moment a lot to look at diversity, and we will have lots of occasions for medical schools of middle class families moving in to a low uh, representation postcode for the application deadline and then moving out. But do not underestimate the power uh, of gaming. So maybe it would unravel, uh, he says, still trying to win the argument. Um, the, the, I think on the political side, a number of, I, I do think our modern political system is unfit for purpose for this. I, I, the, the more I thought about it, the more, and that's, you know, I was talking about the mobility of education secretaries. I think the Social Mobility Commission, Sam was being very polite about it, I think it's been politicised. Yeah. Uh, what, what you want is long-term <laughs> strategies for this stuff. It's hard. You need an early years system which we've lost over the last 20 years. You probably need better funded further education colleges. I think it's a scandal that they're funded lower than, than school. There's all sort of systematic things you would do if you genuinely bleed in social mobility strokes. I, I totally agree with that. There's a lot of rhetoric around mm. it, but ultimately it's empty. And the other thing that Steve and I looked at was a lot of the statements were about what we call absolute social mobility. So it was kind of everyone doing well. You know, politicians mm. don't like to talk about relative mobility because that means there's winners and losers so that tended to be the emphasis right mm. we're just going to grow the economy as if that was easy right we're just going to grow society so i think there's a lot of talk about it 
Um, but to be frank, I, 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 I despair, and, and I'm, 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 I'm hopeful for the future. Uh, but at the moment, I would, I would say it's not fit for purpose. Okay, I'm afraid we've um, we've run out of time, um, and on such a negative note. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so thanks very much to the speakers. Fast, fascinating talk discussion went very fast. We could we could we could have carried on for ages, I think. Um, and I'm sure there was many more. Sorry for people who didn't get to ask their question. Uh, I'm sure there was many more. So okay, so so I hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, there's, there's going to be more events tomorrow at a festival. So if, if, if you want a copy of a programme and feel like attending any of them, uh, feel, feel free to take the programme as you go. And so I think we should just thank the speakers and me. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.